Good morning again. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to be reading Hebrews chapter 4 verses 1 through 10. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said or spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Blessed it's the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, instructive, and crucially important word to our hearts, our souls, and our perseverance. Father, we love you, and it's been so good to enjoy you together in song and prayer. And now, may the grace and the presence of your Spirit cause that same delight and that same worship to be happening over your Word. Even paragraphs like this that are complex. So help me as a teacher. And help us see with our mind's eye and embrace with our heart's arms the glory of your word, your son, in his name, amen. To be brought up in a Christian home is a real blessing. A providential gift of God to any who's fortunate enough. But to be brought up and inundated with the culture of Christianity also comes with an inherent danger. 
Some of the most frightening words in the Bible fall from the lips of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is claiming that it's possible to think that one is following him and to be involved in the culture of Christianity and in church structures and yet not be true partakers of Christ. And thus excluded from the resurrection of the just. These were not unchurched pagans that he's referring to. Their cry was, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. And we did things in the name of Christianity. We did things in your name, Jesus, and they expected to get in. So, I know it's been start, just starting sober, right? This is why the gospel's so good. So if Jesus' words, though, don't produce in us as professing Christians a reflection upon our own hearts. Every day it's called today. They should. Now, Hebrews chapter 4. Notice, begins with the word, therefore. Which means he's drawn a conclusion from what we've been seeing in chapter 3. And remember, he in, ended chapter 3 with the warning about Israel as our example under Moses that it was unbelief that kept the people of Israel from entering the promised land, from entering the, the rest that God had promised. See verse 19, the end of chapter 3. So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So both Jesus' words and the words of our text warn us against the danger of merely being a cultural Christian. By that I mean people who claim to believe in Jesus. They go to church, they serve in the church, but who will hear the terrible words on Judgment Day? Depart from me. I never knew you. Now notice that the writer to the Hebrews, he cloaks this warning to the church, to us who profess Christ, he cloaks the warning and his exhortation in it in the context of the history of Israel, a particular, crucially important part of the history of Israel. He quotes, we saw in chapter 3, Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11, which recounts how Israel in the wilderness angered God, and thus God cut them off from entering His rest. The promised land. 
And then that was the writer's reason we saw last week for his exhortation to live out the Christian life in verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Coming out of the backdrop of his example, the children of Israel. And you think about it. The ones he's talking about is don't be like that. All of them put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. They all followed Moses through the Red Sea. They escaped Pharaoh's army. Nevertheless, they had hearts of stone. And the text says, God swore in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And that's why we saw twice in chapter 3, the writer tells the Christians, the Hebrew Jewish Christians that he's writing to originally, and thus down through the ages, us. He told them twice, hold firm. You remember your initial confession of faith in Jesus? You remember your excitement over such good news? Hold firm that confession, that assurance of your hope. Why? So that you don't harden your heart like they did under Moses. The point of that story of Israel under Moses is not what I was taught as a young Christian. Oh, they're all saved. All those children of God, of Israel, in the wilderness, they're saved. They came out of the world. They came out of Egypt. So they're true believers. They were just Living carnal lives. For you youngins, it's the old King James word for the flesh. Fleshly, sinful lives. In other words, they're saved, but they just failed to possess the land. Which means to conquer sinful dispositions in their lives. In other words, they failed to go on to stage two Christianity called discipleship. My, my wife's uncle wrote a book titled... Possess the land. But I've tried to show over the last few weeks at the point of Psalm 95 that he's quoting and of Hebrews 3 is that those who fell in the wilderness with hard hearts, they were culturally part of Israel, God's people. But their hearts were far from having saving faith. Their hearts were hardened far from trusting in Yahweh. And that's why they were under God's wrath. 
as he says in verse 11 of chapter 3. As I swore in my wrath, God says, they shall not enter my rest. And then he goes on in chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, remember? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. See, their basic problem is called in the text a lack of faith. Meaning trusting God. It's called unbelief. Right? Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you, like them, an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. Or in verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Not trusting God's word. And unbelief, that's the essence of what sin is. Is. That's the essence of falling short of the glory of God. And it is the unbelief that has an outcome called disobedience to God. So when the writer now comes into what we call chapter 4, because he's not writing chapters and verses, okay, he applies it to the church now. And when he does, he's clearly talking about eternal Salvation, not mere discipleship. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still remains or stands, let us fear. There's the command. Lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. It's not about the deeper Christian life. It's about being finally and ultimately saved in the glorification. Fear what? Let's read the text carefully and very slowly. See it so we can see it. For, I want you to notice the, there's a purpose clause in verse 1. But it's the negative purpose. In other words, in order that something doesn't happen. That's the goal. So how do you get to the goal? The means. What's the means? The command. Let us fear. And here's the purpose clause. Why? Lest, or in order that something does not happen. Lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. To reach what? God's rest, that's the context. But what exactly is it that we are to fear so that we don't fail to enter God's rest? Well, the answer is right in front of us. So again, block out chapter 4 in your mind. Just read the end, the last sentence of chapter 3, and just flow it right into as he continues to write. Verse 1 of chapter 4. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us 
fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. They were unable to enter God's rest because of unbelief. Therefore, fear, unbelief. It's the only thing he could mean here. Fear, unbelief, rising up in your hearts. Because that's what will keep a person from entering God's rest. The rest of eternal life. Fear, unbelief. Fear, not trusting God's promises in the gospel. And then verse 2 Look at it. Makes it clear that the author is plainly talking about our ultimate response to the gospel. Notice verse 2 begins with the word for, which means he's now given a reason for verse 1. A reason for why we should fear. So the flow is this. Fear unbelief because, verse 2, Fear unbelief because good news came to us just as to them in the wilderness. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who heard or listened. Okay. That's the main point. Of verses 1 to 10. Now just look down at your Bible. If you've got a paper Bible, you can see the whole thing. There's no other main point. That is it. Fear. Lest this happen to you. Fear, in other words, hearing the promises of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and all that it promises. Fear not trusting those words from God. Because the same thing will happen to people who fail to trust God. We will not enter God's eternal rest if we do not trust His promises. That's the main point. All the way down to verse 10. Now, the rest of this passage, beginning with verse 3 down to verse 10 is an explanation, an argument for that, for that exhortation. Fear unbelief. Here's why. And because verses 3 to 10, I mean, I think you would agree with me, certainly is to me, my first readings of it, is very difficult to understand quickly. We're going to spend the rest of our time on verses 3 to 10. Then we'll come back next week to the main point of the passage to think deeper about what does that mean to fear unbelief. So, verses 3 to 10. The word, notice there, for, at the beginning of verse 3, that's what signifies that he's now explaining that the true rest of God in salvation, and here's his point in, in verses 3 to 10, we'll see it. His point is that true rest of God in salvation was always available throughout the different periods of 
history. Start with verses 3 to 5. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, in Psalm 95, he said, They shall not enter my rest. So, first he says that we who believe in Jesus, we Christians, we enter the rest. How? Through faith. Then he cites Psalm 95, verse 11. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is to confirm that he's still talking about the same rest as he was talking about in chapter 3. And then he adds the word, it's a good translation, although. Although it was true, God swore, they're not going to enter my rest. Even though God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. And then to say, where'd you get that from? He, he tells us. So he quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. To show, what's he doing? To show what rest the writer's talking about. It's God's rest, which existed from the Garden of Eden on. It was there in the garden. It was available to Cain. He refused it. It was available to Abel. He entered it. It was there under Moses, though the vast majority refused it. It was there under David, as he will go on to show. So just briefly, let me paraphrase verses what we just read, 3 to 5, real quickly in my very different words. So you say, I want to understand, how are you understanding this, Pastor Joe? He's saying this, we... Believers have entered God's rest. The rest that those in the wilderness failed to enter. And the reason they failed was not because there was no true rest available to them. Because God's rest has existed since creation. The foundation of the world. In other words, the writer sees in Genesis chapter 2 a restful, peaceful, sovereign God who has a rest. Who has a place of peace, a place of joy where His people can enjoy fellowship with Him. Enter my rest. He's saying that the Jewish Sabbath which was rooted in Genesis 2. It's rooted in the creation narrative. 
that that Sabbath rest was a picture, a shadow, a foreshadowing to point to something ultimate and, and real, the rest that can be entered eternally with a sinner and God. The Sabbath was a day of rest. Stop working. Stop doing your normal six days a week work and be refreshed through time with God week after week. But that Sabbath, that, that, that once a week, it was a foreshadowing of the reality of the rest. The rest with God of eternal life. That's what he means by the word although. Middle of verse 3. Although. That was true, but even though the truth is, God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. Because he's somewhere spoken on this, of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And then he says in verse 5, and again in Psalm 95, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Which means, not only since creation, but on down through Moses' time and David's time, this true rest of God was available. Then in verses 6 and 7, he draws a conclusion from it. Since, therefore, it remains, this is A.D. 60, when he's writing now. Since, therefore, in A.D. 60, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news under Moses failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long after Moses, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your so notice how the writer is understanding Old Testament history. He's saying that the land over the Jordan, the land of Canaan, was not the final rest. That's what he says. And why does he conclude this? His answer is, because 450 years later, David wrote of a rest that was still available to enter. 
for the people who are already living in the land of Canaan. Since those in the wilderness who dropped dead before God allowed the others to enter, since they failed to enter God's rest, David, hundreds of years later by the Spirit, wrote, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. There's still a day of opportunity to enter God's rest. Then verse 8 explains what he means. For, let's unpack it now. If Joshua who led Israel over the Jordan in to possess the land of Canaan. For if Joshua had given them rest, the point is, he didn't. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So the writer shows that even those who entered the promised land under Joshua did not necessarily experience the fullness of God's rest. What does he base it on? His answer? Because David, 400 years after Joshua, spoke of the need to enter God's rest. His point is that just entering the promised land physically was not the true rest of God. It was a type. It was a foreshadowing. It was a picture, not the reality. A picture of the eternal rest of salvation from sin and enjoyment of God. Now, just for a moment, I if you're reading, I don't do this I got often, but it's, I think it's really important here. And what the writer's doing, because you know what he's doing with types and shadows throughout the book of Hebrews. He's starting them now. So if you're reading the Greek New Testament here, the Greek word that you see there translated Joshua in verse 8 is the word Yesus. Some of you know. That's the exact same name of our Lord, Jesus, Yesus. Jesus, or Yesus in Hebrew, Jesus was Yeshua, which is, which is Joshua. It's the exact same name. We know which character, that's why they translate it Joshua, but it's what we translate the word Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. So the original readers and these, these Hebrew, Greek-speaking Jews, they would have seen the play on the names. That the original Jesus, Joshua, was a type. Type of the reality which was to come in Jesus, the Messiah. Joshua led the people into the promised land, but that was only a picture of the rest of God's salvation that Jesus, Jesus, provides. So did Joshua give the people true, final, ultimate rest that God has in mind for His people? 
Verse 8 answers very clearly, no. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Centuries later, God spoke of another day. Today. Today, you can enter his rest. And from this, the writer to the Hebrews draws that all-important and very relevant conclusion about God's rest in verses 9 and 10. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his or her works as God did from his. So he says today in 8060, 1400 years after Joshua, a thousand years after David, or today in 2022, the rest is available. It's open. If you woke up today and it's true that it's called today, then God's eternal rest with Him is still available. This is the rest that Jesus promised when He said, Come to me, all you who work and are heavy laden, and I will give to you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find Rest for your souls. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the author of Hebrews says, this offering, it remains for the people of God. And then he explains in verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest that person has also rested from his or her works. Just as God did from his works. What does that mean? Here's my shot at it. From the beginning, God has offered eternal salvation and he still offers it under the imagery of the Sabbath day, the Sabbath rest. So for us to have entered God's rest, remember his rest is God rested from his creation working. Done. And so for us to enter that rest, 
It means we have rested from our works through faith. That was his whole point. We who have believed, that's faith. We who have believed, enter that rest. And that means we've stopped trusting our works to save us. But we rest in the work of Christ to save us. Remember how Paul put it in Romans chapter 4? And he didn't misspeak. And to the one who does not work. He doesn't mean have faith first and then get to work. No, he means the one who refuses to work. Ever. In the way he means it. To the one who does not work. But believes, trusts in Him who justifies dirty, rotten sinners, the ungodly. That person, his or her faith is counted as righteousness. Okay, that's all, that's all I got. Except I'm going to do it one more time to see if it's helpful. I'm going to paraphrase what I went through Verses 3 through 10. Even though God's work was completed on the seventh day and He entered into His rest, and thus He made the Sabbath rest of salvation available from the beginning, nevertheless, as a whole, Israel failed to enter the true rest of God. And therefore, the land of Canaan was not the real, ultimate rest. It was a type. It was a, a shadow of the real rest of the soul in God. This is proved by the fact that 450 years after Moses, God, through David, is still saying to Israel, who's dwelling in Canaan, Today is the day to enter God's rest. So soften your hearts and come to the rest of faith. And therefore, biblically, it's clear the rest existed and it was available from the foundation of the world. It was offered to Abel. It was offered to those under Moses. It was offered to those under Joshua. It was offered centuries later under David. And today, in AD 60, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God to enter. And in 2020, it is still here to enter. And therefore, he says, stop working to try to earn anything from God. Believe in the good news. We've had good news come to us just as they have had. Believe in the good news of the gospel and enter true rest 
just as God, is it true rest? Okay. Let me just close this morning with four applications of this text. First, mere general knowledge of Christianity, general belief in Christianity will save no one. We must have a personal faith in Christ. The kind of faith that says, I see it. The light went on. Yes. You don't have to make me eat this disgusting vegetable. That, that's what the gospel is actually to many, by definition, sinners growing up in Christian homes. So they learn to fake it until God's grace comes. They say, this is delicious. In other words, the faith of Caleb and Joshua under Moses. Then there were ten other guys, each representing each tribe, who were not regenerated. And God said, take the land, and they say, we can't. I'm going to give you the land. No, you're not. What's that? Unbelief. Caleb and Joshua, you said it, let's go. That's faith. The Jews in the wilderness as a whole believed in God in the general sense. They knew and affirmed the story of creation, the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They believed that they are part of the Abrahamic covenant. They believed enough to put the blood on the doorpost. They followed Moses through the Red Sea. But none of that benefited them, the text says. Personally. Why? Because they did not believe in God, in Yahweh, meaning personally. Meaning, believe in the sense of, that's what the word means, trusted Him. Like Caleb and Joshua. So it's not enough to grow up in the church and to have a general belief in God. A general belief in Jesus Christ. It's not enough to know the Bible stories and about the life and the sacrificial death and the resurrection of Christ and intellectually even agree with it. Genuine, saving faith. Trust personally in that Christ. Loves Him. It trust in His shed blood because the sense of your sinfulness is overwhelming to you. And that's a gift of God, that sense. And you realize finally, like I did at age 19, owing nothing to myself. What I believed in my head 
dropped down into my heart by God's grace. And it goes, it's different. It's different. It was different to say, Jesus died for sinners. And I realized, He died for me. That's the gospel saving. A pagan or anyone growing up in the church world. General knowledge isn't enough. Second point. This text as a whole is and has been over the weeks mercifully screaming at us, have an assurance of your salvation and beware of false peace that comes through an ambiguous cultural Christianity. It may be true that there are many in our evangelical American church world that'll be like those people Jesus spoke of. Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name, in the name of Christianity, and they'll be shut out. Especially within the evangelical church world where people hear, let me say it this way, they get an inoculation from the true. And they're really hard to reach. That's why we even call it the Bible Belt. Hard to reach church-going people. Because they're told and watered down thus untrue gospel. Just ask Jesus into your heart. You believe, right? Yep, got it. You're saved. That's it. That's Christianity. Everything else is icing and we're separated from that. But they're not taught the next week and the next month and the next year. Wait a minute, what is that faith? Is there a false faith? What is biblical faith? Let's unpack the scripture. Let's let it speak to us and continue to define it. They're not told they must repent from their sin because that's not adding to faith. It's one of the essences of the fruit of faith. And because of that, that's why the polls Anytime they're given, whether it's Barna or the Gallup poll, it shows that there is virtually no difference between, quote-unquote, born-again Christians, evangelical Christians, the way they think and the way they live from the rest of the population. Third, the issue throughout chapter 3 and chapter 4, the issue, in other words, of perseverance in faith, it is, first and foremost, a heart issue. Here, right? Do not, here's the point, do not, and speaking to me, Joe LeMay, constantly, every day, I'm still alive, but wake up, it's today, do not harden your heart. If you've come to Christ, we have come to Christ, here, here's where the confidence comes from. We know we have a different heart than before we came to Christ. It's not that you don't sin, but it's that your attitude towards your sin is radically different. 
Oh, sin, by definition, is enticing. That's not the point. But there's something that it, you're like a schizophrenic. At both times, that you hate that. Let your assurance grow. Before being born of God, you were apathetic towards the things of God. Now, you love God. You, you love His Word. The bent of your life is to, to know and to love Him more and more. And finally, Saving faith is resting in God. Jump down to verse 11 for one second as I close. Notice the irony in how he says this. Let us therefore strive. Seems like a lot of work. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We must rest from our works. but be diligent to enter God's true rest. This is the tension that we're going to come back and tackle next week. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still remains, let us, church, fear unbelief, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you give and grant to us all who are in Christ a deep assurance deep joy of this salvation as we're preparing to partake of the cup and eat of the bread. Oh, may it signify the joy of eating our true rest, which is Christ, your Son. In Him, in Him alone, do we trust that He is the only avenue through our welcome with you now and at judgment day and in the resurrection forever.